Welcome to Babel, Translating the Middle East, a podcast from the Middle East program at CSIS. Here on Babel, we take you beyond the headlines to take a closer look at what's happening in the Middle East and why it matters. This week on Babel, John talks to Khaled Daoud, an Egyptian journalist and politician who was recently released after 19 months in prison. Then, John, Natasha, and I discuss the relationship between journalism, activism, and the government. To translate some of what's happening in the Middle East, this is Babel. Khal Daoud is a veteran Egyptian journalist and political figure. He was the Ahram bureau chief in Washington, D.C. for several years after 9-11, and he was just freed from 19 months in prison on April 14th. Khaled, welcome to Babel. Well, thank you, John, for having me. Thank you, Khaled. Now, you know, you were arrested on September 25th, 2019. What were you charged with? September 24th. I was arrested on the night of Tuesday, September 24th. I was arrested in the street, just like after parking in front of my dad's home. I found people holding my hands and like, you know, saying, come with us. I, I asked them who you are. They said we're national security. So they just pushed me into a car and they blindfolded me. I mean, actually, they use one of those masks, you know, the ones used during kidnapping cases. Then they took me to the headquarters of the National State Security, where I spent the night. And then the second day, I was referred to the prosecutor, where basically I faced three charges that are sort of cliche that goes for any opposition figures or members who get arrested in over the past three or four years, which is assisting a terrorist group in achieving its goals while knowing its targets and spreading false news and abuse of social media. Of course, as you might notice, the first one is like the most dangerous one because the trick that the regime has been resorting to since President Sisi took office was amending the pretrial detention law so that if you're charged with terrorism, the prosecutors can keep you in prison for up to two years. While in the regular criminal system, if I'm charged, say, with spreading false news only or abuse of social media only, I'd be referred to a regular prosecutor, not a state security prosecutor, and the maximum pretrial detention would be six months. So they have to include a charge that includes the word terrorism, and then they can keep you in prison for up to two years. Of course, I have no relationship to any terrorism of any sort. I'm a sort of more of a leftist Egyptian intellectual. Did they ever name a group that they thought you were a member of or people they thought you were associated with who were dangerous? Over 10 sessions with the prosecutors and maybe another eight or nine sessions in which I got 45 days renewals. This was the number one question. They never named the terrorist organization. I don't know anything about how I participated with this alleged terrorist organization. And even when I would tell the prosecutor concerning spreading false news that I've been a journalist for 30 years and I teach journalism at the American University in Cairo for the past six years. So I should know what's like, you know, false news and what's not false news. And I've never been involved in spreading false news. This is like MassCom 100 when we teach the students is that you differentiate between opinion and news and that there's no opinion in news. News, you should be objective. But in my case, for example, I gave him an example, the prosecutor, I would see the Wall Street Journal reporting that former U.S. President Donald Trump was waiting for, for a meeting with uh, Sisi in one of the G20 meetings. And then he told the national security advisor of that time, where is my favorite dictator? So this is not my reporting. This is the Wall Street Journal reporting. But I would share that news item from my point of view, to reflect even how Trump thinks. And that's what I've been doing all my life. I never spread false news, which is actually the worst charge you can make against the journalist is spreading false news. It's interesting because, of course, there are a lot of journalists in the United States who not only wouldn't lead a political party, but a lot of journalists in the United States refuse to vote because it's their argument that to be a journalist, you have to be completely impartial from what you're covering. You've been involved in politics for a while. How did you get involved and how did you square your journalist role and your political role? 
Well, you see, I, my answer to this question is that journalism or the business of producing newspapers is very diversified. So basically, it all has to do with the, with the topic that you choose to report on. And my sort of speciality or my part in the newspaper where I work, Al-Ahram Weekly, is that I'm sort of an international affairs reporter. So I don't report on local news at all because I know that I'm a political figure. There's no way I'm an opponent of President Sisi and I would report on President Sisi. My integrity would not allow me to do something like that. Also allow me to say one thing, which is the reason why I got involved in politics, you know, at one point or the other, is the fact that I work as a journalist because my entire approach to politics is that we need basic freedoms. And without freedom of expression, without freedom of the press, you cannot have a healthy political atmosphere which would help in democratizing the society in which you're living into. So even my entry into politics has been mainly because I spent maybe how many years between 1990 and say 2011 when Mubarak was removed working in a government newspaper and I can see what an authoritarian regime can do to the quality of report, reporting that you produce when you're totally under the government control. So when I joined the 2011 revolution, when I left New York and I came to Egypt during the revolution, my dream and my hope was basically to reform the media business in Egypt in terms that we need to report the truth. We should not make the president the center of attention as reporters. We should try to bring up subjects that are of interest to the Egyptian public. And this is something that we actually did in Al-Ahram and in other government-owned newspapers right after the revolution. And it was like gravity law. As soon as we improved our reporting, we started reporting on issues that matter to the readers. The circulation of newspapers increased as much as the viewership of local TV channels increased. Because when you're credible in your reporting, when you have a diverse media, when you have diverse political life, whether media or political parties, people are interested. They take part in public affairs. They vote. They watch their own local media. So my argument is, if the government is very unhappy with, if the CC government is very unhappy with the, the way those channels, the, the pan-Arab channels and the Turkey-based channels are reporting about Egypt, let's improve our own local media reporting. Let's lift the severe restrictions, many restrictions that we have on the local media. And then you will see the people, you know, staying away from the, those channels based abroad and they will watch your local media. How did you decide that politics was going to be a big part of your career going forward? Well, first of all, let me say that the nine years that I spent in the United States were indeed very useful in my understanding of the role of the media and the relationship between media and government. And of course, coming from Egypt, I was very impressed by the margin of freedom that the local press or even what you call national media or the I remember there was Douglas Fife at that time. He was working for the Secretary of Defense. He was working for the Pentagon. The Undersecretary of Defense for Policy. Exactly, exactly. And then my impression was, you know, that I want to do an interview with that guy. And then, of course, like, you know, calling the Ministry of Defense in Egypt is like a kind of, I mean, I mean, it's like a fantasy. You know, no reporter would call the Ministry of Defense for no reason. Or to ask for a meeting or an interview as a reporter with the Undersecretary of Defense. But then I called the Pentagon general number and I asked for Mr. Douglas Fife's office. And I said, I'm a bureau chief of Al-Ahram and I'm coming from Egypt and I want to interview Douglas Fife. And they said, okay, we'll look into his schedule and we'll call you back. And then one or two days later, I found Mr. Douglas Fife himself on the phone and saying, hello, Khaled, you know, so this was like, are you actually Mr. Fife, the Undersecretary of the United States Army or the United States uh, Secretary of Defense? And the guy was very cool about it. And we shook hands after the interview. I mean, I did not receive any calls from the Pentagon asking to review the interview before it was published or to censor my interview or those all those kinds of stuff. If you work in media, in Egypt in particular, you have to fight for freedom of expression. You have to fight for freedom of the press. So that's how you find yourself involved in politics. I mean, one reason why I remain like kind of loyal to my principles and the things that I believe in, in terms of diversity, pluralism, freedom of the press, is what I saw after 2011, which is basically when you have an open atmosphere, 
People can join whatever political parties they want. Suddenly, after the revolution, we had maybe 10, 20, 30 parties coming up. And people would go into those political parties. In the store, for example, established by Dr. Muhammad al-Baradai, we had maybe up to 50, 60,000 members in a matter of two, three, four weeks, you know, because he had a presidential election campaign, which basically was very active. But it was the same with all the other political parties, the free Egyptians. We thought that it's going to replace Al-Wafd, you know, as a liberal party. The socialists, you know, they had their own political party. And later, now, after Sisi, the turning point, of course, was the very uh, dividing year we lived under the Muslim Brotherhood that gave the chance for the old regime to make a very strong comeback and to argue that, look what democracy brought to you. It brought chaos. It brought the Muslim Brotherhood. It brought sectarian strikes. Of course, the Muslim Brotherhood, from my point of view, did some fatal mistakes, which made the removal a very necessary matter in order to protect the country from civil war. You know, from my, in my opinion, up until today, even though I went to prison, even though Mr. Sisi put me in prison, I cannot regret being on the forefront of um, standing up to Morsi or demonstrating against Morsi and asking for early presidential elections. And you were assaulted by Muslim Brotherhood supporters and staff. Yes. I was one of those people who belonged to the camp who believed that you have to integrate the Muslim Brotherhood into the political system so that maybe they can adopt a more moderate position, thinking of the Turkish model, the Indonesian model, something like that, where you accept having a secular state and you are a political party with an Islamic background, no problem, as long as you stick to the democratic rules. But then after the revolution, when I saw their holistic attitude, their desire to control everything in the same dictatorship manner like Mubarak exactly, except with an Islamic banner, you know, I had to feel, I felt that, no, we're, you're taking us even to a more dangerous future for my country. Still, you know, even though I totally disagree with the Muslim Brotherhood, I can never disregard the fact that they are Egyptian citizens with full rights like myself. And what I mean by being, you know, subject to a, a fair law, subject to fair trials. So even if I stand against them, I cannot support for example, mass killing that happened in Rab'a, and I resigned from the National Salvation Front after Rab'a because I remember very well, Dr. Mohammed Baradai at that time was the vice president, and he said we wanted to avoid a future similar to that of Algeria after the removal of the Islamic Front there in 1992, because they saw 10 years of blood. And actually, we've been through that as well in a very similar manner, Muslim Brotherhood after Rab'a. They got involved in violent acts. They felt that they need to take revenge, all that kind of stuff. And unfortunately, three months after Mursi's removal, just happened by mere coincidence, I was driving my car in a Cairo street. They were demonstrating Muslim Brotherhood supporters. They saw me, they assaulted me, they stabbed me. A number of their supporters stabbed me a couple of times. You know, one of them tried to cut my hand because he thinks I should not use it in writing anymore. Whatever, you know, it was a very bad experience for me. I spent 18 days in hospital. But again, even though, despite that, and even though one of the worst experiences I had during prison was meeting Muslim Brotherhood supporters during our renewal sessions, because during the renewal sessions, we're shipped like cattle. When you're given more time for in pretrial detention. And then, of course, we're all cramped into a small room. The civilian parties like Al-Distur, like the Egyptian Social Democratic Party, the Socialist you know, what we call the civilian parties. But the majority, it's almost like 80% Muslim Brotherhood and other political Islamic groups. So during those sessions of renewal, either for 15 days or for 45 days, you meet a lot of Muslim Brotherhood supporters. And of course, there is a sense of gloating. You know, they're like, okay, now, so did you save us, Mr. Salvation Front? Now you see what's, uh, is it wasn't Morsi better than Sisi? Why couldn't you wait? So you went from being assistant editor of Ahram Weekly and a political figure to being a prisoner. What were the conditions in prison like for you for 19 months? Okay, I think that from the beginning of the national security, which is the one in control of this entire uh, process for all the political detainees, they were very keen from the beginning not to mistreat me personally, except for the first night, that was like the worst nightmare. You know, when I was arrested and I was kept at the national security headquarters, blindfolded and handcuffed throughout the night, you know, and then again, but even that I was lucky because if I was not uh, relatively known as a, a journalist, as a political figure, whatever you name it, there was a very much a big chance that I could spend 
one week, two weeks, one month, two months at the headquarters of the national security where you're basically unaccounted for. The second day, uh, uh, September 25th, I was taken to a prison, uh, Liman Torah prison, but then they kept me in a relatively well-to-do ward in terms of the company. There were like 16 cells in the ward in which I was kept, only five cells in which are, there are political prisoners, but there are small cells, three people in each cell. And then, of course, our entire ward, you know, was equipped with hot water, you know, which is a major, major, major privilege inside prison. And we had a Western style toilet. In my ward, there were like 40 prisoners, five cells for political prisoners, almost 10 people. And then you have 11 cells that are basically kept for former police officers who committed crimes such as uh, drug dealing, killing, murder, whatever, bribery, or uh, the former governor of Monofia who received a bribe of 27 million Egyptian pounds. So basically, the 30 criminally convicted fellow prisoners were mostly kind of people, decent people. I was able to sleep on on a metal bed, which is again a major privilege because the rest of the prison, people sleep on the ground. They are kept in more like bigger rooms, taking 15 people, 20 people, and it's only one bathroom for 15, 20 people. At least I had one bathroom for three people, which is, again, of course, very acceptable. And then, of course, the recreation period was a major point of debate all the time with the national security officer. But the end result is that most of the 19 months, maybe at least 15 months, you spend 23 hours a day inside this very small cell basically lying on your bed. You see, the thing about prison and their way of dealing with prisoners is that they start slowly, slowly giving you things so that you can, first of all, learn that what prison means. Like the first 18 days were the worst days, 18 days of total lock. You're not allowed any recreation. You're not allowed any visits from outside. So we're basically kept with the same clothes, no toothbrush, no soap, no nothing. You know, I mean, because that's the, we call it, they call it the isolation period. And then after 18 days, I went to the national security officer during my first visit and I said, okay, Mr. Officer, did you have enough in giving us a hard time? Can you just take it easy a little bit and loosen things up? And he started laughing actually, because he knows that this is what, like, you know, they toughen things up for you in the beginning and then they start loosening up a little bit, a little bit. So they started giving us a recreation, which is basically walking around in an open space, like a football yard or something. You walk around for half an hour and then you start fighting and say, no, I want one hour. You give the criminals, the one who are dealing in drugs, the one the murderers, you give them uh, three hours and you give me half an hour only. So give me one hour. And then they say, we'll look into it. After six months, they give you, okay, we'll give you one hour. And then books, you know, books is the the prisoners uh, are the prisoners. Number one friend, number one and two and three and four and five. And you can go forever. You know, I read a tremendous number of books. And then, of course, unlike criminal prisoners, we're not allowed any TV sets inside our cells, but we are allowed a small radio. So, I mean, I've always, I even teach my students that the best thing in media is radio because you have to be very skillful to work for radio and write things that would make the people close their eyes and imagine things. So, of course, that was my opportunity to put my theory in practice. And I close my eyes, listen to the radio, imagine things, especially soccer. I love soccer. So, I mean, like, you know, I would follow all the games and close my eyes and Imagine how the courtyard is or the football yard is and how things are, or even some channels would air a a movie or a TV series, but just for radio. You're only allowed novels and history books, you know, but you're not allowed any political books. And of course, the national security officer who's resident in prison, he has to go, he has to read the books first and, you know, see if they're okay uh, or not okay, basically, depending on the title, depending on flipping the quickly through the book. So if he falls into a page in which there are a few sentences he doesn't like, he bans that book, you know. The national security officer, they would give you, you know, a few books here and there to, to uh, that you're allowed to read. And, and the radio as well, you're only allowed to listen to FM channels, which are basically government control channels. But I managed to sneak in a radio with a short medium wave so I can listen to the BBC in the day during the morning, a few hours just to get some information of what's really happening in the world because the official channels that are run by the government or other agencies here in Egypt are basically all about the president, the activities of the president, the orders of the president, how great is the president. But I remember reading in this book, a novel, how the prisoner was saying that the hardest days are the first days, first months, say, for example, two, three months in prison. 
But after that, like as if your spirit goes dark, basically, and you start losing sense of days, of hours, and of your life, the meaning of your life in general. You just feel all the days are the same. You know, you, of course, of course, you lose track of which day we're in because you, you don't really get to know which day we're in except on Fridays because on Fridays they lock the prison cell 24 hours and uh, you're not allowed to have a recreation. So you know that this is Friday. For me as a journalist, my prime concern or my prime uh, urge was to get as much information as you can from the outside world. And then, of course, that comes through your family visits, which are, again, supervised and monitored by the national security officer who sits with me all the time with my family. But of course, I mean, maybe I was also unlucky because my imprisonment came during the COVID-19 outbreak for six months. There were no outside sessions at all. In terms of renewal, they would only renew your imprisonment on paper. And of course, there were no family visits. And I think this kind of panic that came with the break of the outbreak of the COVID-19 made people forget about us relatively, you know, even though there were many, many other countries and it was like a subject of a joke, you know, during my imprisonment when COVID-19 first broke out is that we would stand on these small windows in the doors and talk to each other. So there were many countries at that time, they were starting to release prisoners in thousands, thousands, you know, I mean, like, because they don't want the pandemic to spread among prisoners and stuff like that. So every day we go at night, hey, Sudan decided to release 3,000 people. Maybe Allah will bring the same decision to Egypt, Palestine, Iran, 70,000, Turkey, I don't know how many thousand, Emirates, whatever, and saying Egypt is next, Egypt is next. And so, And it was like sad and funny at the same time how some prisoners, not even the criminal prisoners who know that they have 10 years, they have 15 years, whatever, would say, I wish I can get COVID-19 because this means I will get out of here. So that's like how bad, you know, some people would go for it in terms of seeing how things go. Do you know why you were released? I don't know why I was arrested and I don't know why I was released. And since I, I mean, not since even... The tradition in, in my case, like a political prisoner, is that before you release, maybe two weeks, three weeks, a couple of security officers, national security officers would come to the prison and they would hold a meeting with you. And the language goes like, you know, we hope that you've learned from your experience. When you get out of here, you will understand and appreciate the security situation in the country and try to kind of adopt a middle ground. And we want you to take care of your family say, for example, three weeks before I was actually physically released. But then those two got to these two officers who came to meet me in prison. That was my question number one. Why was I arrested? Why did you arrest me? Tell me, man. You know, I mean, I'm, I've been doing the same things for many years. I never crossed the line, you know. And it's again, you see, the Muslim Brotherhood, John, and I'm sure you know this, they openly and directly have a serious personal problem with CC. They want to overthrow Sisi. They consider him a cool leader. They think he's uh, a dictator. They use that kind of language. But I don't use that kind of language. We recognize the legitimacy of President Sisi. We can, I can understand his obsession with this business that we have to keep this. Uh, we have to keep the state together. We have uh, the state will break down into pieces, and Egypt will be in a state of chaos. I understand where he comes from, but this doesn't mean that at all we must go back to the Mubarak period. That's like taking us many steps back. I mean, compared to even what we enjoyed before 2011. And it was always a common joke amongst us, you know, people like myself, whether I consider myself a social democrat, liberals, uh, Arab nationalists, when we meet in prison and we joke, and we say, oh, we miss the days of the mod moderate repression under Mubarak. The beautiful moderate repression. That's like Azaman al Qam al Wasati al Gamil. The moderate, beautiful repression under. Yes, it, there was repression under Mubarak, but compared to what we're seeing right now, we, because you wrote a couple of sentences on Facebook, uh, because you liked uh, a post that maybe John wrote, Khaled wrote, Muhammad wrote, try to express your views as a as a citizen. You find yourself in prison endlessly. You know, you feel like you're going into the black hole. I knew about this before I went into prison because I've, I've had many members of the school party that I belong to who were arrested. But what I didn't know about when I before I went into prison is this new practice of even what we call revolving door cases, that you would finish your two years as a, a pre-trial detainee for whatever same cliche charges, 
And then after you finish two years, they can even release your own paper or without even releasing your own paper, they get you involved in a new case with the different number, but with the same charges, you know, joining an illegal terrorist organization, spreading false news, but just a different number. And then you start the process all over again, 15 days, 15 days for 10 times, and then 45 days until you finish another two years. So, I mean, under Mubarak, there was the emergency law, and now we also have the emergency law, but under Mubarak, there were like what they call detention orders. So they renew your imprisonment once every 45 days, just with a written piece of paper from the interior minister. And then even when you stand in front of the court, the court would release you. The interior ministry at that time under Mubarak would issue a new detention order. Right now under Sisi, they went for this draconian pre-trial detention law and they amended the law with this lengthening the period to two years if you're charged with terrorism. And then open-ended powers for the national security, because even if you finish your two years, you can get involved in another two years. And that's why it's even a priority for me, even if I don't play a political role anymore, is to join a lot of effort, including that statement that was issued by 31 countries when I was imprisoned by the United Nations Human Rights Committee, basically asking to amend the pretrial detention law and to put limits on that practice. So let me ask two quick questions. One is, the government presumably was trying to teach you a lesson. What lesson did you learn from it? You know, when you leave a prison like myself, many people like myself who were released from prison, you're torn between this was a very tough lesson. I should keep quiet. And like we say in Egypt, walk next to the wall. And, you know, as the state national security officers, people told me, uh, take care of your family, take care of yourself and all that kind of stuff. And then, of course, the fact that I am very angry that I was kept in prison unjustly for 19 months. And I am very angry and sad over my friends and colleagues who are remain to be inside suffering the same injustice that I suffered for 19 months. So I've been thinking I've been released now almost slightly more than two weeks. 15 days. This is my first sort of, I don't consider it an interview. I'm talking to a friend. So it's like, so this is my first chat over my imprisonment. And I've been thinking about this for 16 days now since I was released, but I feel we must continue after my imprisonment experience, even if I keep on fighting for little things, you know, what I would consider to be little things, such as, it's not little, such as amending the the pre-trial detention law, because if you fix that law, if you put restrictions on the wide, massive powers enjoyed by the national security and the state security prosecutors, you will help in releasing thousands, thousands. I saw thousands of people going through this vicious circle of renewals, you know, that are meaningless, nothing to do with justice. You're not even listened to, you know, because when I stand in front of this judge, They place us inside the court cage, which is basically made of very thick glass. You cannot even hear the proceedings. So in my case, for example, case number 488, which is a very old case that started even six months before my imprisonment, but it doesn't matter. You know, they arrest me in September. The case is open since March, but it doesn't matter. They just have an open case. Let's put you inside that case. So basically, I I didn't hear the judge calling my name. The judge would say, case number 488. This case has something like 400 people. We're arrested different times, different governorates, different backgrounds, different ages, different everything. But then the judge would renew imprisonment for all those people, 400 people just at once. Or maybe he would say the decision at the end of the session. And, you know, maybe he would release one or two, but all the others renewal for 45 days. And like, you know, you stand, I, I managed to only two times to stand in front of the judge and you tell him the same thing. I'm a journalist. I'm a university professor. I'm a former political party president. I've never been involved in terrorism. Just tell me the details of the charges. The judge would listen and say the decision at the end of the session. And it's always another 45 days. And even before my release, John, you know, I was given 45 days the last time on March 30, you know, so it's not a court issue. It's not a legal issue. It's the national security. These are the ones who arrest us, and these are the ones who release us. Up to their own estimate, I was arrested during the state of chaos uh, 
that existed when this contractor, Muhammad Ali, came out and he started making video about Sisi. The state was very tense. You know, I was arrested 24th, four days earlier, for the first time under Sisi, there were big demonstrations. Up until today, I don't know who is Muhammad Ali. I don't know who are the people who took part in those demonstrations, but I know very well, you know, that the government was very tense. The president obviously was not very happy. So they decided to arrest people whom they thought could be outspoken during this critical period of time. You know, the, the Egyptian government or the Egyptian security agencies, they were never happy. And I was told that because when I get my young people arrested in the Destour party, I would speak to the national security officer. You know, why did you arrest this person? Can we get some, some food in? Can we get him some clothes in? Whatever. So there was a contact between me and the national security officers. And then the, the officer would come to me and tell me, Khaled, please do not speak. He doesn't say please. Khaled, do not speak to the foreign media. Don't speak to BBC, don't speak to, you know, CNN, whatever, or the pan-Arab channels. And I said, listen, guys, I don't work for you. I work for a political party. I do have some principles. I'm very Egyptian. I consider myself that I know my country well. I'm not surprised that I was arrested, but I'm a little bit surprised why they kept me for so long. Well, at the time of your arrest, you were assistant editor of a state-owned newspaper, Ahram Weekly, that publishes in England. You continue to have your state job. You continue yes. to have your job at the American University in Cairo teaching journalism. Alhamdulillah. Yes. So after all of this, it feels almost like there's a sort of no harm, no foul. You can come back and just behave a little better. Is that the message they're trying to send? No, I wish it's behave a little better, you know. Maybe behave much better. Behave like not speaking at all. And that's even an advice that I get from lots of friends. But of course, there are some, some things that will never be fixed, you know, such as prison is tough. You know, I mean, it's, it's very tough to spend 23 hours in a prison cell controlled by people who just love practicing control. Everything is an issue. You know, if you want to see a doctor, it's an issue. If you want to get some food from outside, it's an issue. Yeah, you try to be strong and you try to act like, you know, this is part of the experience. But of course, it hurts you. One of the books I read, you know, Mr. Salah Sabur, he was talking actually about this, the concept of political detention, comparing a political detainee to a criminal detainee. And the worst thing about the political detainee is that you don't know when are you going to get released. Because when you're a criminal prisoner, you know, you're sentenced, you know that I'm going to be released after two years, three years, five years, 10 years, but you can have a countdown. In my case, and in my, the case of my fellows, you know, in prison right now, we cannot make a countdown. You know what I mean? So... There is the nightmarish, open-ended scenario where you can be forever in prison. But anyway, I hope that I can continue working on little things, you know, pressing with others for a serious reconsideration of the policy of arresting people for very untrustworthy reasons. There's no reason for the government to put more and more people in prison, even if they want to confront the Muslim Brotherhood. They definitely need a democratic alternative. Yes, of course, we need social and economic development, but we also need political development. We need to have a society in which, again, we have a president that can be held accountable, a president who's not going to stay in office forever, a president who's not going to treat lightly with the Constitution as soon as he gets elected, uh, promising and, and even swearing that I will only spend eight years in power as a president. We've been through a long history of single party rule, single president rule. Nasser, uh, Sadat, uh, Mubarak, uh, you know, the only way for them to be removed is either to pass away by natural reasons or by, you know, assassination like Sadat or after 30 years, a popular revolution removing President Mubarak. So we wanted to get out of this because, again, it's not because sometimes they come to me, oh, you Americanized, you spent nine years in America, you want to, you think Egypt is like America. No, Egypt is not like America, of course. But I know from my Egyptian experience that if you stay in office forever, this is going to open the door for corruption. You're going to have a little kind of a gang around you in which you trust and you give all powers. It's going to be like, again, a killer for any sort of chances of questioning or accountability of that government. And we've seen it ourselves. We send expertise to the entire Arab world. Many Arab countries, they benefit from Egyptian doctors, engineers. So we're not like that kind of, you know, we're not fit for democracy business. No, we want democracy. We deserve democracy. We deserve human rights. Of course, I express my own 
political point of view. I mean, I don't want a religious state. I respect women's rights. I respect Coptic rights, you know, minority rights. It's not the same thing like Muslim Brotherhood or other religious political group, but it's definitely not the single president rule and like, you know, the miraculous Superman president who can do everything. I don't want to go through this again. And Hopefully we'll continue speaking about it. Maybe I'll watch my language a little bit. I don't know, John. You know, I don't want to go to prison again. Prison is very, very tough, very unhappy experience. But, you know, it's, it's, it's our fate. You know, it's our fate. And to be very honest, I cannot rest, you know, honestly, sitting in my home and enjoying my lovely bed and my lovely shower, all privileges and enjoying seeing the moon and enjoying the Nile and enjoying my friends. While I know that my friends whom I spent 19 months with, with remain inside prison suffering what they are suffering, suffering the lockdown for 23 hours. And they also have families. They also have beloved ones. And, and I wish I can do anything, anything that can help those people release. They are good people, honest people, men and women, Mahinur Masri, uh, Isra Abdel Fattah, uh, Ziyad Dalemi, uh, Hussam Mu'nis, Hisham, you know, many people, Haitha Mohammedin. And these are all people who've been in prison for almost two years. And I wish I can help in maybe if the government here has any tendency towards a slight open up, you know, we're not uh, hoping for something major, but if I can help in doing this, I'll definitely do that happily if I can. Khaldoud, thank you for joining us on Babel. Muchas gracias. Thank you very much. Next up, John, Natasha, and I discuss the relationship between journalism, activism, and the government. To bring us back a little bit from the interview, what is the relationship between local media, activism, and governance? And is that relationship the same everywhere? I think in, a, in an ideal scenario, the, the link between local media and governance can be really productive. In an area where there's weaker governance, for example, local media could serve as an extra monitor, for example. Activists could also keep the government or the private sector in check or other fairly somewhat nefarious or corrupt actors. And I think it's just, you know, an added check on the governance. And, and, and this could be extremely useful, in, I think, in all societies. That said, in a lot of parts of the Middle East, the, the local media tends to be dominated, if not state owned, and therefore has to essentially be a sounding board for, for whatever government policies are in place rather than providing that, that monitoring influence of governance and the environment. What I heard Khaled talking about was the importance of an independent media enforcing accountability. How you enforce accountability in non-democratic systems is, I think, different because I don't think he thinks in Egypt you're, you're going to have elections that turn people out for, for lack of performance, at least in the near term. But there still is a need, he thinks, to demonstrate transparency as a check against too much government control. Because authoritarian governments tend to amass more and more control, and there tend to be fewer and fewer checks on their accountability, and individuals get a lot of power. And what I heard him talking about was the importance of of there always being a tension between the power that people have and their ability to stay in power, that, that if people become too comfortable in power, that they abuse that power and that abuses the, the performance in terms of, of what the people experience. You both just described this Venn diagram of local media activism and governments if you have activists providing checks on local media or local media providing checks on governance or any combination of that three, and it stops being this healthy checks and balance, and let's say the government starts imprisoning journalists, what does that mean for that ecosystem? One thing that he said that I thought was really fascinating is how there was this uptick in people's interest in reading different media outlets when it became freer, when it was seen to not be intimately connected or even state-owned. And I, I think that also provides this avenue for people to be more interested in governance more broadly. Because I think there was this sentiment when the Arab Spring started, especially in Egypt, that it was kind of these elite activists, a lot of them like Khaled, 
that sort of initiated this revolution, but but the rest of the people may have not been ready for it or, or something like that. And I think what he was trying to say is that local media can help part of that and that sort of democratization process because it makes people more interested in local governance because they see how it affects their daily lives when it's an independent free media that's actually reporting on it. But sustaining that interest, I think, is, is more of a challenge, perhaps more of a challenge than Khaled completely understood. There, there certainly was a huge novelty to having an independent press in the Middle East after 2011, just the way Al Jazeera was a huge novelty, saying things that people never had access to in the late 1990s. Sustaining that attention and interest on hard issues that might not be intrinsically interesting as hard as I think we've seen through social media in the United States. There are a lot of people who engage with news principally through social media, increasingly opinionated channels. So the idea of, of people having a keen interest in looking at journalists presenting both sides is a model, but I'm not sure it's the only model. I mean, we recently interviewed Zaina Erheim, who is a Syrian activist and, and journalist, and she had been training journalists. And there's also a lot of organizations that are that are training journalists on how to improve their own security when it comes to information sharing and reporting. And I think that that's going to be really important moving forward as well, in case forces do take back over certain areas and wish to suppress the media. You know, John, previously you said that Khaled does not see himself as an activist. He's a journalist and a politician. And Natasha, you were talking about Zena being a journalist and an activist. What, and even in the interview with him, John, you Khaled said he's very principled about what he will report on and he won't cover CC because that falls within his politician hat. What are some of the risks that come with twinning journalism and activism? Like sometimes people look at the journalist and say, you are in opposition broadly, so you may only be writing about foreign policy, but we know what you think, and so your critiques of foreign policy are actually politically motivated. You critique the foreign policy in order to advance your your political views. I mean, from the point of view of people who feel criticized, and in many cases, Middle Eastern governments who feel it's not legitimate to criticize them, that they paint their critics with a broad brush and say, everything you do is intended to humiliate me and we are in an existential battle and we will fight as if it's an existential battle. Khaled, in his mind, has a very clear line of what he'll do and what he won't do. What I think he was surprised by is he was dealing with people who just don't accept the categorization and who in some ways want to to increase the ambiguity because ambiguity when you have power gives you more power. And I think, I mean, I'm sure that, that Natasha's seen this as well. A lot of authoritarian governments aren't really clear what the rules are because they don't want you coming right up to the line. They want you staying away from the line. So occasionally outrageously responding to something is a way to just deter anybody from doing anything suspicious. And it seems to me that one of the key moments was when he talked about when you're a political prisoner, you never know when your term is up. It's all about power and the people in power demonstrating time and time again that they have power. And what Kyle is doing is contesting that power. And ultimately, while he thinks there's a very clear break between this part of his life and that part of his life, for the people in power, there's one struggle going on, and Khaled's on the wrong side of the line. And I think their hope is that Khaled will decide he won't be on the wrong side of the line. And if they, they feel that, that he needs another lesson, I didn't hear when he was describing his jailers, I didn't hear a, a great sense that he thought that they would hesitate from teaching him another lesson. And I don't, but I also didn't hear him saying that he was about to take that lesson. I think to get back to your point on on sort of this inherent tension between activism and journalism. 
I think in, in the United States, we're, we're lucky enough that we can have journalists that just appear to be unbiased or impartial. I think in the Middle East, that's harder because you're already fighting against this idea that free speech is not allowed or it's dangerous, for example. So you're already having to fight against that issue. So anything that you report on or that you put out is going to be seen as a threat and a criticism to whatever that authority is. And their knee-jerk reaction, and has been the case for, for many years now, is that journalist or that reporter is being funded by foreign elements or terrorists or what have you in order to deflect any criticism. And there's multiple other ways, as, as John alluded to, that, that these governments control the media. And it is through fear. I mean, sometimes it's just through gag orders, which basically create a sort of self-censorship. And you, and you see that, you know, throughout the Middle East, especially when it comes to criticizing the government in particular or particular actors within the government. And you also see imprisoning journalists. Lina Atallah is another journalist that's uh, recently gotten out of prison in Egypt. And I think the, the idea is that this will get them to self-censor in the future or maybe get them to, to go into exile, for example. And there's other various threats that can be inflicted upon these people that go beyond threats to their person. And, and this is when it starts getting, I think, really dangerous, especially for, for some friends of, of mine in the, in, the, in the past. Because essentially, even if you've left the country, the government can still target you because they can target you through your relatives that remain in the country they can target you now through through apps like Pegasus, for example. There was recently the death of a of a longtime reformist and activist, Michel Kilo, in Syria. And he talks about how he met a boy in prison in Syria who was actually born in prison because he and his mother were being held hostage while his father was in Amman. And and you see this carried out over and over again in these countries. And Syria is certainly not the only place to do that. And so eventually you get people to just stay in line because even if they are willing to take on the risk, they're not willing to put their their families in jeopardy, for example. But ultimately what Khaled was talking about was about journalism as a way to change the structure of power and to diminish unchecked governmental power and to put more power in the hands of the citizens. There are people in regional governments who feel that the government is the only thing that stands between the society and chaos. And that if you turn over power to citizens, you don't have democracy, you have mob rule, you have corruption, you have chaos, you have all those things. And so it's, it's, I think it's a much deeper philosophical difference it's a much more political difference, and it is an existential concern for a lot of people in government who feel that if you let up the pressure, you won't have a renaissance, you'll have an explosion. I think on the flip side of that, just, just to add, that's definitely the fear of regimes that are in power. But if you look at, I guess, some of their allies that are aiming to minimize that crisis or that explosion, it could also be argued that if there is an independent local media that's identifying these smaller issues prior to an explosion, that we can understand them better and respond to them better before they become that crisis. And I think that you saw this a bit in Jordan recently, and, and we talked about this in the last podcast, but there's a lot of people that look at Jordan and they say, oh, sleepy Jordan. And they don't recognize that there are tensions and that there are problems that are palpable in people's lives and that go beyond these protests that happen every once in a while, every year, every couple of years, and that those tensions remain and, and my fear is that without something like a local media, independent local media or free speech, that we can't identify those issues before they do explode. But what the governments would like to do in many cases is rather than having a, a journalism sector they can't control, they like to engage on social media, use influencers, 
right, shape a public conversation, not going through journalists who feel separate from the government, but trying to create organs which are aligned with the government but don't belong to the government and both act, as Natasha was suggesting, as an early sensing infrastructure and also a way to push back and steer. And I think for, for a number of governments in the Middle East, especially in the last 10 years, that's been a way to both provide a pressure valve, but also to maintain greater control because part of the, the mode of journalists is, as Khaled said, you have the state journalists who do what the state tells you and independent journalists who defy the state. And they're looking for a third of third space where they can engage in social media space and influence it, sensing, play in that game, but not have to deal with a group of people that they feel are, are beyond their influence. There's also an element in some of these countries where there is allowed dissidence. So there's just a measure of it. Miriam Cook talks about this in her book, Dissident Syria, where there were certain artists and writers and journalists that were allowed to write certain things as long as they didn't cross a line. And you heard Khaled talk about this a lot, this line that, that people cannot cross, right? I think that that would have been more allowed, let's say, prior to the Arab Spring. And I think what we're seeing today is this really sort of restraining the public space completely because there is that fear now with the Arab Spring. So even that those little bits of allowed dissent are not even getting through. But that was definitely, I think, a sort of a strategy of these various governments to allow certain bits of, of dissent, whether it was through art or novels or whatever it happened to be, but just as long as it didn't threaten the overall structure. And arguably, Jamal Khashoggi played that role until he stopped playing that role. But Jamal was a, a prominent advisor to the government and gadfly and critic. And he played that role for several decades, but under a different leadership that was more comfortable with what he felt the boundaries were, more comfortable in, in his critiques. Thank you both for joining me on Babel. Tune in next week for an episode where we discuss the release of our new report, Sustainable States, Environment, Governance, and the Future of the Middle East. Thanks for listening to Babel. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can find more analysis on this topic linked in the show notes on the CSS website, and you can find us on Twitter at CSIS Mideast.